0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Crime and Punishment by Fedor Dostoevsky. Translated by Constance Garnett. Chapter 6. Part 1. Later on Raskolnikov happened to find out why the huckster and his wife had invited Lizaveta. It was a very ordinary matter and there was nothing exceptional about it. A family who had come to the town and being reduced to poverty were selling their household goods and clothes, all of women's things, as the things would have been fetched little in the market They were looking for a dealer. This was Lizaveta's business. She undertook such jobs and was frequently employed, as she was very honest and always fixed a fair price and stuck to it. She spoke, as a rule, little, and, as we have said already, she was very submissive and timid. But Raskolnikov had become superstitious of late. The traces of superstition remained in him long after and were almost ineradicable. And in all this, he was always afterwards disposed to see something strange and mysterious, as it were the presence of some peculiar influences and coincidences. In the previous winter student he knew, Karl Pokarev who had left for Kharkov, had chanced in the conversation to give him the address of Alena Ivanovna, the old pawnbroker, in case he might want to pawn anything. For a long while he did not go to her, or he had lessons and managed to get along somehow. Six weeks ago he had remembered the address he had two articles which could be pawned. His father's old silver watch, and a little gold ring with the three red stones, a present from his sister at parting. He decided to take the ring. Then he found the old woman. He had felt an insurmountable repulsion for her at first glance, though he knew nothing special about her. He got two rubles from her and went into the miserable little tavern on his way home. He asked for tea, sat down and sunk into the deep food. A strange idea was pecking at his brain, like a chicken in the egg, and there very, very much absorbed him. Almost beside him, at the next table, there was sitting a student whom he did not know and had never seen, and with him a young officer. They had played a game of billiards and began drinking tea. All at once he heard the student mention to the officer, the pawnbroker Leona Ivanovna, and give him her address. This of itself seemed strange to Raskolnikov, he had just come from her, and here at once he heard her name. Of course, it was a chance, but he could not shake off a very extraordinary impression and here, someone seemed to be speaking expressly for him. The student began telling his friend various details about Aliana Ivanovna. She's a 1st rate, he said. You can always get money from her. She's as rich as you She can give you five thousand rubles at the same time, and she is not above taking a pledge for a ruble Lots of other fellows have had dealings with her. But she's is an awful old heartbeat. And he began describing how spiteful and uncertain she was, how if you were only a day late with your interest the pledge was lost, how she gave a quarter of the value of an article and took 5 or even 7% a month on it, and so on. The student chattered on, saying that she had a sister, Elizabeth, whom the wretched little creature was continually beating and kept in the complete bondage, like a small child, though Lizaveta was at least six feet high. — There's a phenomenon for you! — cried the student, and he laughed. They began talking about Lizaveta. The student spoke about her with a peculiar relish and was continually laughing, and the officer listened with great interest and asked him to send Lizaveta to do some mending for him. Raskolnikov did not miss a word, and learned everything about her. Lizaveta was younger than the old woman and was her half-sister. Being the child of the different mother, she was thirty-five. She worked day and night for her sister and besides doing the cooking and the washing, she did sewing and worked as a chairwoman and gave her sister all she earned. She did not dare to accept an order or job of any kind without her sister's permission. The old woman had already made her will, and Elizabeth knew of it. And by this will, she would not get a farthing, nothing but the movables, chairs, and so on. All the money was left to the monastery and the province of Anne that prayers might be said. For her in perpetuity. Lizaveta was of a lower rank than her sister and married an awfully uncouth in appearance, and remarkably tall with long teeth that look as if they were bent outwards. She always wore better goatskin shoes and was cleaner her person. What the student expressed most surprise and amusement about was the fact that Lisaveta was continually the child. But you say she is a hideous, observed the officer, yes, she dark-skinned and looks like a soldier dressed up, but you know she is not at all hideous, she has such a good natured face and eyes, strikingly so, and the proof of it is that lots of people are attracted by her, she is such a soft, gentle creature ready to put up with anything always willing willing to do anything and her smile is really very sweet you seem to find her attractive yourself laughed the officer from her queerness now i'll tell you what i could kill that damned old woman and make off with her money i assure you without the faintest conscious prick the student added with warmth The officer laughed again while Raskolnikov shuddered. How strange it was. — Listen, I want to ask you a serious question, the student said hotly. I was joking, of course, but you... But look here. On the one side we have a stupid, senseless, worthless, spiteful, ailing-hearted old woman not simply useless but doing actual mischief. Who has not an idea what she is living for herself and who will die in a day or two in any case. You understand? You understand? Yes, yes, I understand, answered the officer, watching his excited companion attentively. Well, listen then. On the other side, fresh young lives thrown away for want of help and by thousands on every side. A hundred thousand good deeds could be done and helped on that old woman's money which will be buried in a monastery. Hundreds, thousands perhaps might be set on the right path. Dozens of families saved from destitution, from ruin, from vice, from the law hospitals, and all her money. Kill her, take her money, and with the half of it, devote oneself to the service of humanity and the good of all what do you think would not one tiny crime be wiped out by thousands of good deeds for one life thousands would be saved from corruption and decay one death and a hundred lives in exchange it's simple arithmetic. besides what value has the life of that sickly stupid ill-naturate old woman in the balance of existence no more than the life of the loose of the black beetle less in fact because the old woman is doing harm she is wearing out the lives of others the other day she bit lizaveta's finger out of spite it almost had to be amputated of course she does not deserve to live remarked the officer but there it is its nature oh well brother but we have to correct and direct nature And uh, but for that, we should run in an ocean of prejudice. But for that, there would never have been a single great man. They talk of duty, conscience. I don't want to say anything against duty and conscience. But the point is, what do we mean by them? Stay, I have another question to ask you. Listen now you stay i'll ask you a question listen well you are talking and speechifying away but tell me would you kill the old woman yourself of course not i was only arguing the justice of it it's nothing to do with me but i think if you would not do it yourself there is no justice about it let us have another game Raskolnikov was violently agitated, of course it was all ordinary youthful talk and thought such as he had often heard before in different forms and on different themes, but why had he happened to heard such a discussion and such ideas at the very moment when his own brain was just conceiving the very same ideas, and why? Just at the moment when he had brought away the embryo of his idea from the old woman, had he dropped at once upon a conversation about her? This coincidence always seemed strange to him. This trivial talk in the tavern had an immense influence on him in his later action, as though there had really been in it something preordained. Some guiding hint. On returning from the haymarket, he flung himself on the sofa and sat for a whole hour without stirring. Meanwhile, it got dark. He had no candle, and indeed, it did not occur to him to light up. He could never recollect whether he had been thinking about anything at that time. At last. He was conscious of his form of fever and shivering and he realized the relief would he could lie down on the sofa. Soon heavy leaden sleep came over him as it were crushing him. He slept an extraordinarily long time in the hall dreaming. Nastasia, coming into his room at ten o'clock the next morning, had difficulty in rousing him she brought him in tea and bread the tea was again the second brew and again her own teapot my goodness how he sleeps she cried indignantly and he always asleep he got up with an effort his head ached he stood up took a turn in his garret and sank back into the sofa again going to sleep again cried nastasia Are you ill, eh? He made no reply. Do you want some tea? Afterwards, he said with an effort, closing his eyes again and turning to the wall. Nastasia stood over him. Perhaps he really is ill, she said, turned and went out. She came in again at two o'clock the soup. He was lying as before. The tea stood untouched. Nastasia felt positively offended and began, wrathfully rousing him. Why are you lying like a log? she shouted, looking at him with repulsion. He got up and sat down again, but said nothing and stared at the floor. Are you ill or not? asked Nastasia and again received no answer. You better go out and get a breath of air, she said after a pause. Will you eat it or not? Afterwards, he said weakly, you can go. And he motioned her out. She remained a little longer, looked at him with compassion and went out. A few minutes afterwards, he raised his eyes and looked for a long while at the tea and the soup. Then he took the bread, took up a spoon and began to eat. He ate a little, three or four spoonfuls without appetite, as if there mechanically his head ached less. After his meal he stretched himself on the sofa again, but now he could not sleep. He lay without stirring with his face in the pillow. He was haunted by daydreams and such strange daydreams, and one that kept recurring. He fancied that he was in Africa, in Egypt and some sort of oasis. The caravan was resting, the camels were peacefully lying down. The palms stood all around in the complete circle, all the party were at dinner. But he was drinking water from a spring, which floated gurgling close by, and it was so cool, it was wonderful, wonderful blue, cold water running among the party-colored stones, and all the, the clean sand which glistened here and there like gold. Suddenly he heard the clock strike. He started, roused himself, raised his head, look out of the window, and seeing how late it was, suddenly jumped up wide awake as though someone had pulled him off the sofa. He crept on tiptoe to the door, stealthily opened it, and began listening on the staircase. His heart beat terribly. But all was quiet on the stairs, as if everyone was asleep. It seemed to him strange and monstrous that he could have slept in such forgetfulness from the previous day, and had done nothing, had prepared nothing yet. And meanwhile, perhaps it had struck six, and his drowsiness and stupefaction, were followed by an extraordinary, feverish, as it were, distracted haste. But the preparations to be made were few. He concentrated all his energies on thinking of everything and forgetting nothing, and his heart kept beating and thumping so that he could hardly breathe. First he had to make a noose and saw it, into his older coat, a work of the moment. He rummaged under his pillow and picked out amongst the linens stuffed away under it a worn-out old unwatched shirt. From its rags he tore a long strip a couple of inches wide and about 16 inches long. He folded the strip in two, took off his wide Strong summer overcoat of some stout cotton material, his only outer garment, and began sewing the two ends of the rag on the inside under the left armhole. His hands shook as he sewed, but he did it successfully so that nothing showed outside when he put the coat on again. The needle and thread he had got ready long before, and they lay on his table in a piece of paper. As for the news, it was a very ingenious device of his own, the news was intended for the axe. It was impossible for him to carry the axe to the streets in his hands, and if hidden under his hood he would still have had to support it with his hand which would have been noticeable now he had only to put the head of the axe in the noose and it would hang quietly under his arm on the inside putting his hand in his coat pocket he could hold the end of the handle all the way so that it did not swing and as the coat was very full a regular sack in fact it could not be seen from outside what he was holding something with the hand that was in the pocket. This news, too, he had designed a fourth night before. When he had finished with this, he thrust his hand into a little opening between his sofa and the floor, fumbled in the left corner, and drew out the pledge, which he had got ready long before, and hidden there. This pledge was, however, only a smoothly planned piece of wood the size and thickness of the silver cigarette case. He picked up this piece of wood in one of his wanderings in a courtyard where there was some sort of a workshop. Afterwards, he had added to the wood a thin smooth piece of iron, which he had also picked up at the same time in the street putting the iron, which was a little smaller than the piece of wood, he fastened them very firmly, crossing and recrossing the thread round them, then wrapped them carefully and daintily in the clean white paper and tied up the parcels so that it would be very difficult to untie it. This was in order to divert the attention of the old woman for a time, while she was trying to undo the knot and so to gain a moment the iron strip was added to give weight so that the woman might not guess the first minute what the thing was made of wood all this had been stored by him beforehand under the sofa he had only just got the pledge out when he heard someone suddenly about in the yard it struck six long ago long ago my god he rushed to the door, or listened, caught up his hat, and began to descend his thirteen steps cautiously, noiselessly, like a cat. He had still the most important thing to do—to steal the axe from the kitchen. That the deed must be done with an axe. He had decided long ago. He had also a pocket pruning knife, but he could not rely on the knife and still less on his own strength, and so resolved finally on the axe. We may note in the passing, one peculiarity in regard to all the final resolutions taken by him in the matter, they had one strange characteristic, the more final they were, the more hideous and the more absurd we at once became in his eyes. In spite of all his agonizing inward struggle, he never for a single instant all that time could believe in the carrying out of his plans and indeed if it had ever happened that everything to the least point could have been considered and finally settled and no uncertainty of any kind had remained he would it seems have renounced it all as something absurd monstrous and impossible but a whole mass of unsettled points and uncertainties remain. As for getting the axe, that trifling business caused him no anxiety, for nothing could be easier. Nastasia was continually out of the house, especially in the evenings. She would run into the neighbors or to a shop and always left the door ajar. It was the one thing the landlady was calling her about. And so, when the time came, he could only have to go quietly into the kitchen and to take the axe, and an hour later when everything was over go and put it back again. But these were doubtful points. Supposing he returned an hour later to put it back, and Anastasia had come back and was not the spot. He would of course have to go by and wait till she went out again but supposing she were in the meantime to miss the axe look for it make an outcry that would mean suspicion or at least grounds for suspicion but those were all trifles which he had not even begun to consider and indeed he had no time he was thinking of the chief point and put off trifling details until he could believe in it all but that seemed utterly unattainable so it seemed to himself at least he could not imagine for instance what he would sometime leap off thinking get up and simply go there even his late experiment that is his visit with the object of the final survey of the place was simply an attempt at an experiment far from being the real thing, as well one should say, come, let us go and try it, why dream about it, and at once he had broken down and had run away cursing in a frenzy with himself, meanwhile it would seem, as regards the moral question, that his analysis was complete his casuistry had become keen as a razor and he could not find rational objections in himself but in the last resort he simply ceased to believe in himself and doggedly slavishly sought arguments in all directions fumbling for them as though someone were forcing and drawing him to it at first Long before, indeed, he had been much occupied with one question – why almost all crimes are so badly concealed and so easily detected, and why almost all criminals leave such obvious traces. He had come gradually to many different and curious conclusions and in his opinion, the chief reason lay not so much in the material impossibility of concealing the crime as in the criminal himself. Almost every criminal is subject to a failure of will and reasoning power by childish and phenomenal heedlessness at the very instant when prudence and caution are most essential it was his conviction that this eclipse of reason and failure of will-power attacked a man like a disease developed gradually and reached its highest point just before the perpetration of the crime continued with equal violence at the moment of the crime and for longer or shorter time after according to the individual case and then passed off like any other disease the question whether the disease gives rise to the crime or whether the crime of its own peculiar nature is always accompanied by something of the nature of disease he did not yet feel able to decide When he reached these conclusions he decided that in his own case where could not be such a morbid reaction that his reason and will would remain unimpaired at the time of carrying out his design for the simple reason that his design was not a crime. We will omit all the process by means of which he arrived at this last conclusion. We have run too far ahead already. We may add only that the practical, purely material difficulties of that fear occupied a secondary position in his mind. One has but to keep all one's willpower and reason to deal with them, and they will all be overcome at the time when once one has familiarized oneself with the minute details of the business. But this preparation had never been begun. His final decisions were what he came to trust least and when the hour struck it all came to pass quite differently as it were accidentally and unexpectedly. One trifling circumstance upset his calculations before he had even left the staircase. When he reached the landlady's kitchen, the door of which was open as usual, he glanced cautiously to see whether, in Anastasia's absence the landlady herself was there, or if not that the door to her own room was closed, so that she might not peep out when he went in for the axe. But what was his amazement when he suddenly saw that Nastasia was not only at home in the kitchen, but was occupied there, taking clean out of the basket and hanging it on a line. Seeing him, she left the hanging of the clothes, turned it to him, and stared at him all the time he was passing. He turned away his eyes, and walked past as though well he noticed nothing. But it was the end of everything. He had not the axe. He was overwhelmed. What made me think? He reflected as he went under the gateway. What made me think which she would be sure not to be at home at that moment? Why, why, why did I assume this so suddenly? He was crashed, and even humiliated. He could laugh at himself in his anger and all animal rage boiled within him. He stood hesitating in the gateway, to go into the street, to go a walk for appearance sake was revolting, to go back to his room even more revolting. And what a chance I have lost forever, he muttered, standing aimlessly in the gateway, just opposite the porter's little dark room which was also open. Suddenly he started. From the porter's room, two paces away from him, something shining under the bench to the right caught his eye. He looked about him. Nobody. He approached the room on tiptoe, then down two steps into it, and in a faint voice called the porter. Yes, not at home. Somewhere near, though in the yard, for so the door is wide open. He dashed to the axe, it was an axe, and pulled it out from under the bench, there it lay between two chunks of wood, and once before going out he made it fast in the nose. He thrust both hands into his pockets and went out of the room. No one had noticed him. When reason fail, the devil helps. He fought with a strained grin. This chance raised his spirits extraordinarily. He walked along quietly and sedately without a hurry to avoid awakening suspicion. He scarcely looked at the passers-by, tried to escape looking at their faces at all and to be as little noticeable as possible. Suddenly he thought of his head. Good heavens, I had the money the day before yesterday and did not get a cab to there instead. A curse rose from the bottom of his soul. Glancing out of the corner of his eye into a shop, he saw by a clock on the wall that it was ten minutes past seven. He had to make haste and at the same time to go some way around so as to approach the house from the other side. When he happened to imagine all this beforehand, he sometimes thought "What he would be very much afraid, but he was not very much afraid now, was not afraid at all indeed, his mind was even occupied by irrelevant matters, but by nothing for long, as he passed the Yusupov garden. He was deeply absorbed in considering the building of great fountains and of their refreshing effect on the atmosphere in all the squares. By degrees he passed to the conviction that if the summer garden were extended to the fields of Mars and perhaps joined to the garden of the Mikulkovsky Palace it would be a splendid thing and a great benefit to the town. Then. He was interested by the question why in all great towns men are not simply driven by necessity but in some peculiar way inclined to live in those parts of the town where there are no gardens no fountains there there is more dirt and smell and all sorts of nastiness then his own works through the hay market came back to his mind and for a moment he waked up to reality. What nonsense he thought! Better think of nothing at all. The so probably men led to execution clench mentally at every object that meets them on the way. flashed to his mind, but simply flashed like lightning. He made a haste to dismiss this thought. in barn now he was near. here was the house. here was the gate. suddenly, a clock somewhere struck once what can it be half past seven impossible it must be fast luckily for him everything went well again at the gates at that very moment as though expressly for his benefit a huge wagon of the hay had just driven in at the gate completely screening him as he passed under the gateway and the wagon he had scarcely had time to drive through into the yard before he had slipped in a flash to the right. On the other side of the wagon he could hear shouting and quarrelling, but no one noticed him and no one met him. Many windows looking into that huge, quadrangular yard were open at that moment, but he did not raise his head, he had not the strength to. The staircase leading to the old woman's room was close by, just on the right of the gateway. He was already on the stairs. Drawing a breath, pressing his hand against his throbbing heart and once more feeling for the axe, and setting it straight, he began softly and cautiously ascending the stairs, listening every minute. But the stairs too were quite deserted, all the doors were shut, he met no one. One flat indeed on the third floor was wide open and painters were working in it, but they did not glance at him, he stood still, for a minute and went on. Of course it would be better if they had not been here, but it's two stories above them and there was the fourth story. Here was the door. Here was the flat opposite were empty one. The flat underneath the old woman's was apparently empty also. The wizarding card nailed on the door had been torn off. They had gone away. He was out of breath for one instant. The thought floated through his mind. Shall I go back? But he made no answer. And began listening at the old woman's door, a dead silence. Then he listened again on the staircase, listened long and intently, then looked about him for the last time, pulled himself together, drew himself off, and once more tried the axe in the noose. Am I there pale? He wondered. Am I not evidently agitated? She is mistrustful, had I better wait a little longer, till my heart leaves off thumping. But his heart did not leave off, on the contrary, as though to spite him it throbbed more and more violently. He could stand it no longer, he slowly put out his hand to the bell and rang. Half a minute later he rang again more loudly no answer to go on ringing was useless and out of place the old woman was of course at home but she was suspicious and alone he had some knowledge of her habits and once more he put his ear to the door either his senses were peculiar keen which it is difficult to suppose or the sound was really very distinct. Anyway he suddenly heard something like the cautious touch of a hand on the lock and the rustle of the skirt at the very door. Someone was standing stealthily close to the lock and just as he was doing on the outside was secretly listening the hint and seemed to have her ear to the door. He moved a little on purpose and muttered something aloud that he might not have the appearance of hiding, then rang a third time, but quietly, soberly, and without impatience. Recalling it afterwards, that moment stood out in his mind vividly, distinctly, for ever. He could not make out how he had had such cunning. His mind was, as it were, clouded at moments, and he was almost unconscious of his body. In an instant later, he heard the latch unfastened. End of chapter 6, part 1